The projector starts, and so begins this episode of Movie Nights and Matinees, the podcast for people who enjoy movies from when we actually had to go to the movies. I'm your host, Bill Groves, and this is episode 23. Have yourself a movie little Christmas, in which Jim Reed and I talk Christmas movies with our guests. So put a log on the fire, unless it's a gas fireplace, that wouldn't be good. Pour yourself some eggnog, and get ready to rekindle some cinematic Yuletide memories. Can I refill your eggnog for you? Get you something to eat? Drive you out to the middle of nowhere? Leave you for dead? Wonderful life, White Christmas, The Grinch. Well, actually, I had something else in mind. Something really cool. Hi, everybody. Thanks for listening. Many of us have developed holiday season traditions, whether it be gathering for family meals, decorating the Christmas tree, or trying to stake the front yard inflatable so they don't face plant anytime there's a stiff breeze. In addition to those traditions, if you're like me and Debbie, you have favorite Christmas movies that you enjoy watching year after year, and you're also on the lookout for new ones or those you just haven't gotten around to watching. Joining me and Jim today to talk about Christmas movies is a man uniquely qualified to do so. His name is Jeremy Arnold, and Running Press has just published a revised and expanded edition of his book, Christmas in the Movies, which is part of the TCM library. Jeremy, welcome to Movie Nights and Matinees. Thanks for having me, Bill. It's great to be here. Well, first of all, this is not your first book. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to write this particular book, which was first published in 2018? Sure. Well, for many years, I have been working as a freelance writer here in Los Angeles. My big passion has always been classic cinema. And about 20 years ago, I was put in touch with someone who worked at TCM to talk to them about writing for their website. They still have a roster of writers who write well research, hopefully <laughs> well researched articles on the on the makings and backgrounds of films that they show on the network every month. So I started doing that, and I actually still do it, although not quite as much as I used to. I've probably had close to a thousand separate pieces published on the website over the years. And then around 2015, I was at the TCM Classic Film Festival, and I happened to get into an elevator with a woman who ended up being the editor at Running Press, which had just formed a publishing partnership with Turner Classic Movies. And she was in charge of that unit, basically. We just started chatting, and when she realized what I did and how I was connected to TCM, she said, oh, you might be perfect for this book. We're looking for a writer to do a book on The Essentials, which was a TCM long-running program where they would show a particularly famous, you know, vital classic movie every week and have a major discussion and presentation about it on the network. And so the book was basically a compendium of 52 of the many hundreds of movies that had been on The Essentials over the years. And I was very happy to do that. It was my first book. Then I did 
the Christmas book, then another Essentials book, and now the revised Christmas book. So that's how it began. Well, before I sing the praises of specific elements of the book, just tell us how you describe it. Well, I would describe it as an exploration of what a Christmas movie actually is, as well as a celebration of Christmas movies that we love and revisit every year. And by the way, here are quite a few others that you might not know of and want to add to that list every year. So, you know, it was a tough balancing act because someone might think, oh, it's a pretty book about Christmas movies. It could easily be thought of as just coffee table fodder, something just sort of light and almost frivolous. And, you know, it's designed for the general reader who loves movies in Christmas time. But it was important to me to try and work in some really analytical film writing. So it would be of interest to, shall we say, more serious film people as well. But all done, hopefully, in an accessible way and and a fun, entertaining way. I mean, a a book about Christmas movies, you don't want it to be overly intellectual and dark and serious, although there are some Christmas movies that (laughs) sort of fall into that category. I also really wanted this edition to have much better photo quality than the original was able to have. And I'm very happy with the way that turned out. Okay. I was wondering, that was going to be a question of what the differences are between the original edition, which I have not seen, and the new edition, which I have. And uh, the photo quality certainly is top-notch. And it's in many ways, in addition to the quality, the substantive text in there, it's like a photo album of all these movies and kind of a scrapbook maybe in in other respects. Uh, And you do cover so many of the ones we immediately think of, Miracle on 34th Street, White Christmas, Christmas Story, Elf, Die Hard <laughs> for the that debate. Well, and speaking of that, that maybe is a is a good segue into asking what qualifies as a Christmas movie for the purposes of your book. Well, the short answer is that my definition is any movie in which the holiday season, the Christmas season, plays a meaningful role in the storytelling. So it can't just be a backdrop, it can't just be a setting. It has to actually meaningfully inform the story's concerns, the character's journeys, the audience's takeaway. And the Christmas season can mean a great many different things. It can mean joy and family togetherness, love, compassion, positive transformation. It can also mean loneliness, cynicism, alienation, feeling that the season is insufferable or overly saccharine. All these types of things I think we all experience to one degree or another throughout our lives or even throughout our days when when we're in the season. But in terms of Christmas movies, I think that such a wide spectrum of emotion and meaning means that you can have a great variety of genres and types of movies that can be turned into Christmas movies. So for Die Hard, for instance, since that's kind of what led into this. So in what way does Die Hard fit that mold? And you specifically mentioned that you did not consider Die Hard 2. Christmas movie. So maybe paint the contrast using this because I know it's, you know, it's a big debate. Is Die Hard a Christmas movie or not? And it's interesting with your more meaningful, I guess you'd say, or or deeper definition of a Christmas movie. And it's not just the timing and the and the setting, which is what a lot of people would think qualifies Die Hard as a Christmas movie. So I'd be curious as to the the analysis you would give that one versus Die Hard 2 
And for that matter, lethal weapon. <laughs> sure. I think before I answer that specifically, I want to preface it by just elaborating on something I said a moment ago, which is I said my definition of a Christmas movie is this. And that's an, an important way to phrase it, I think, because everyone has a different definition of the term. And so when you get into these annual debates, is Die Hard a Christmas movie? Yes, it is. No, it isn't. And people dig in and they can't believe the other person is saying what they're saying because it's so obvious. Well, both parties are correct because they're simply both defining Christmas movie differently. So for one, it is and the other, it isn't. The thing is, both are correct. Both are right because Christmas movies were never historically a recognized genre. No one in the, in the 1940s ever said, I'm shooting a Christmas movie next week, or my next picture is a holiday movie. Those terms didn't exist back then. They came later with hindsight. And as a result, a Christmas movie can be whatever someone wants to watch every year at Christmas time. It doesn't even have to have Christmas in it. It can be a Marx Brothers movie. It can be some pure escapist entertainment. And a Stair Rogers movie that you just like watching at Christmas because you're with your family, and that's the kind of entertainment that you want. And for some people, it might be any movie that has even a glimpse of Christmas in it, that has a shot of a Christmas tree in it. Well, okay, that's fine, but I just didn't think that was a very useful definition for me to use if I was exploring the idea of Christmas movies in a book. Especially if you're going to get them all into a book. Yeah, that's that's true, too. And this book is is not meant to be an encyclopedia. It does not claim to be an exhaustive list of every Christmas movie or movies with Christmas in it ever made. If people want to see a list like that, they can find it online easily enough. Although even there, any list like that is devised by someone who has their own definition of Christmas movie. So one has to keep that in mind. Sure. Uh, so as for Die Hard, to me, Die Hard is purely a Christmas movie. It begins as one of the most common types of Christmas movies, which is a family reuniting over the holiday, trying to work out their dysfunction. There are countless films that follow that theme. And Die Hard begins with John McClane, Bruce Willis, traveling across the country to L.A. to try and uh, rectify things with his estranged wife, Holly which, by the way, is a very Christmassy-sounding name and was changed from the novel. So I wonder why it was changed to Holly. <laughs> and so as the McLeans in the first part of the film are trying to work out their problems, well, these pesky terrorists take over the building. I hate it when that happens. Oh, yeah, I know. And John McClane does too, but he's a hero and he's a cop, so he has to spring into action and do his thing. And then as the film goes on, it keeps incorporating tropes of the season into the story, both visually and on the soundtrack. Christmas movies often are centered around houses. They're very common settings for, for Christmas films because most of these are about families and that's where they gather. So in here, instead of a house, we have an office building, which is the center of attention in this story. And we also have Christmas music on the soundtrack. At the beginning of the film, John McClane is being driven to the office building in a limo, and the rap song, Christmas and Hollis, comes on the radio, and Willis says to the driver, Argyle, don't you have any Christmas music? And Argyle says, this is Christmas music. So that's like the movie winking at us and saying, this is a Christmas movie. It's just a different kind of Christmas movie, and you're just going to have to roll with it. When the thieves open the vault that they've been trying to open for the whole film, 
it's treated visually as if they're opening the world's most giant Christmas present. And Ode to Joy plays on the soundtrack, and they even say Merry Christmas to each other. There's a white Christmas at the end with office paper falling from the sky. But I think mostly what makes it really qualify is that Die Hard has violence in it, which is a pretty big reason some people would say it's not a Christmas movie, but it's never unpleasant. It's a very joyful, cheerful, funny movie, you know, even though it has violence in it, you know, and a degree of realism too. Next time you have a chance to kill someone, don't hesitate. Thanks for the advice. But I think that joy and cheer really is linked to the season and makes it of a piece with the season. And of course, it, it opened in the summer. It was not marketed or released as a Christmas movie, just like movies of the 30s and 40s that we have retroactively called Christmas movies, including It's a Wonderful Life, which was never thought of as a Christmas movie. Die Hard falls into that pattern, interestingly enough. Hmm. As for Die Hard 2, it's been a minute since I've watched it, but I did when I was writing the first edition of this book five years ago. And it's not constructed in a way that is really linked to the season. It's not about a marriage trying to be fixed and a family trying to work out their dysfunction. It's more of a straight ahead action movie, although it is set over Christmas. So to me, it's, it's a movie that is set at Christmas, but no more. Okay. Yeah. That's an interesting approach. And I would wonder, and based on that, I would wonder if Lethal Weapon didn't make it in just because, as you say, it can't be an encyclopedia and include everything. But I think of that and you've got the highly dysfunctional suicidal, essentially, Martin Riggs starting out and you know mourning the loss of his wife is one of the reasons he's in that psychological state. And then by the end of the film, he's essentially gained a new family and lease on life set against the Christmas season. So maybe that would would fit into that. Yeah, I would say it's marginal. It's one of these marginal cases where you could argue that it is, you could argue that it isn't. Uh, again, it depends on definition. But even going by my definition, it's on the edges, I think. Mm. And um, I, I just don't think that the Christmas theme and visuals and sound effects, they're not as consistently and strongly integrated into Lethal Weapon, I think, as they are into Die Hard. Yeah, I see what you mean. Also, there's nothing against Lethal Weapon. I like the movie a lot. Well, and again, for space considerations, if you're going to have a movie that's representative of that kind of a blending of a type of story, you know, with the, the violence and, and so forth, then Die Hard obviously is the choice. That's going to be the, the one to go with. Now, as far as the structure of your book, it's really nicely laid out. There's a profile for 35 specific films. And then connected to each one, you have a little sidebar piece called The Holiday Moment that kind of zooms in on one particular scene within the film that uh, is especially meaningful. And then you also have chapters on other topics dropped in that I really enjoyed, such as one on Christmas cartoons, which was uh, fun to go through and, and remember some of those cartoons of having seen them. And in fact, one of them, the, the Tom and Jerry. The Night Before Christmas. Yeah. Debbie and I, a number of years ago, did a monthly matinee movie presentation at a, a nursing home. And for the Christmas program one year, we, we showed that cartoon. And so that one uh, kind of has a special memory for us. Well, you're going to get to see it next Saturday night, too. 
Oh, okay. Spoiler alert. Uh, <laughs> gosh, I wonder if that was the year we ran the same feature that you're going to be running <laughs> next Saturday night. Yeah. And then you had another chapter uh, on Christmas in noir pictures that I thought was really interesting and something that I didn't expect. You had a, even a full page sidebar piece on the silent partner. One I had completely forgotten about. I mean, not, not, I hadn't forgotten the movie, but I actually, it had been long enough since I'd seen it. I kind of forgot about the Christmas element in it, but that movie stands out because it has one of the creepiest moments I've ever seen in any movie. And I'm betting, you know what it is. I, I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah. But I think we want to maybe not spoil the film for people who haven't seen it. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably true. And because if any, if anybody watches it, I'm sure that that moment will stand out for them as well. So let's just say the movie has one scene of graphic horror, but otherwise it's a blend of comedy, suspense, romance. It really is a very pulpy genre film. It was written by Curtis Hansen, made mm-hmm. pretty inexpensively in Canada. Elliot Gould and Christopher Plummer are fantastic in it. You know, the, the way I include it in the book, I kind of say it's not truly a Christmas movie in the way that I define it, but Christmas still has a pretty big presence in it. And I love the movie so much and want it to be seen by more people. So I just was, I was like, I have to find a way to to put this in. And I was very happy that it gets a full page and a picture too. Yeah. Well, I mean, and it tied in, yeah, you're followed nicely on your talk about Christmas noir, which you you said in and of itself that that there's a, a clash there in terms of working Christmas into that genre. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. This is one of my favorite sort of personal discoveries in doing this book was the relationship between Christmas movies and film noir. And the reason it's so fascinating to me is, on the one hand, both Christmas films and noir developed at the same time, pretty much, in the early 1940s. Now, this isn't to say that there weren't Christmas movies made in the 30s. There were. There's the British version of A Christmas Carol. There's a Shirley Temple movie that arguably could be one. And there's some smaller films. But it was really in the 1940s, which was a decade defined by World War II, in which Christmas became a very, very frequent storytelling device. Film noir also emerged in the early 40s, you know, as an outgrowth of German expressionism and gangster movies and the rise of pulp fiction in the culture. And World War II had a strong effect on film noir as well. The idea that returning soldiers felt alienated and had trouble reintegrating into society. And so they fall into the dark side, the dark underworld of life. Noir took that idea and it just exploded onto screens, in particular after the war. The war impacted Christmas movies in terms of the way that the war had been a national trauma societally both on the home front and, of course, for the fighting soldiers. And the first half of the 1940s, in terms of family in this country, it was about families breaking apart and family members going off to war thousands of miles away, home life getting disrupted and the way women suddenly working the factory lines, all these kinds of things reshaping the idea of family. Then in the second half of the decade, it was about families rebuilding themselves, coming back together. And sometimes they weren't able to rebuild themselves because their loved ones didn't come back. Sometimes it was about trying to bring in new family members, getting new marriages and so forth. And all of that was great fodder for Christmas movies because Christmas is a great way of representing the family unit on screen. Audiences instantly know the connection between Christmas and family time because that's what it is. 
But what is even more fascinating is that Christmas and film noir, they're diametrically opposed. They're really the antithesis of each other because Christmas movies are almost always about bringing people together in positive transformation, characters transforming like Ebenezer Scrooge into higher, better versions of themselves. And they almost always have cheerful, you know, joyous endings. Film noir, on the other hand, doesn't care at all about those things. <laughs> it's about pulling characters down, not up, down into the depths of the underworld, their souls, the criminal world. And they're about fatalism and cynicism. Christmas movies are usually about optimism. So they both flourished at the same time, but they went in opposite directions. Christmas pops up in a lot of film noir, but I think that's because Christmas pops up in a lot of movies, period, in the 1940s. But usually when Christmas comes up in a film noir, like in Roadblock or If You Wear My Lovely or uh, Lady on a Train, it's usually for tonal counterpoint, for irony, to show that these sordid happenings are taking place during what is supposed to be a merry festive season. And that's fine, but I don't consider that to be enough to really make a film a Christmas movie. There is one exception in my mind, and that is a movie from 1961 called Blast of Silence, which was an independently made drama filmed all over New York City, fascinating locations. They filmed without permits. They just, these young filmmakers just stole all their shots and found ways of getting what they wanted. I think they spent about $20,000. And they shot over four months, about 20, 22 shooting days. So it's like every week or so, they would find enough money to shoot another day or two of the film. And Blast of Silence is about a hitman who arrives in New York and gets an assignment to murder a local mobster or some kind of shady underworld guy, which he does the day after Christmas. He spends a few days over Christmas preparing, finding a gun, unfortunately running into people who know him and trying to extricate himself from that. But really, it's about him having to kill someone on or around Christmas. You're going to be party to an attempt to kill a man. This is the asphalt jungle. This is New York City with its fancy women and fancy hoodlums. With its very special beat. Its very special places. Its hunters and hunted. And you will walk side by side with Frankie Bono as he stalks his prey knowing what is in his mind, feeling what is in his heart. And your hands will sweat with his fear. Your pulse will pound with his desire. The soundtrack is very unusual. It's filled with voiceover narration in the second person, written by a famous screenwriter, Waldo Salt, who was uncredited because he was blacklisted at the time. And it's read by the actor Lionel Stander, who was a famous character actor, with a very distinctive gravelly voice. And he's uncredited because he also was blacklisted at the time. But as I say, it's in the second person and it's full of lines like, Christmas gives you the creeps. You hate Christmas. Christmas is for all the suckers out there, not for you. Things like that. So it's this, this feeling that Christmas is an insufferable time and it's for saps. You know, you've got a job to do, which is kill this guy and then get back to Cleveland, which is where he's from. So. How does that make it a Christmas movie? It draws meaning from the negative aspects of the season. The idea that Christmas can be a lonely, despairing time, bleak. It can be if you're alone, 
if you're mourning the loss of a loved one from previous years, whatever it may be, we've all been there. Christmas tends to intensify the highs and the lows that naturally come with the season. And Blast of Silence is a movie that just takes those ideas and embraces them and uses them to build this character of this assassin and to make the audience view the story and the character through the prism of Christmas time. There are almost constant references to the season throughout the film, especially on the soundtrack. And even at the end, which takes place a day or two after Christmas, right before the final fade out, there's another reference to Christmas on the soundtrack. As if the movie is saying, remember, you're looking at this through Christmas. And it has one of the bleakest endings of any film noir, of any movie you'll ever see, actually. Very, very downbeat, but really powerful and so fascinating. I would really encourage people to check it out. Also has a really interesting jazz soundtrack. Hmm. Yeah, that sounds uh, like an interesting one. Not exactly the makings of a holly jolly Christmas, but nevertheless worth seeing, it sounds like. You know, there's a whole line of Christmas movies that sort of dwell in the cynical, acerbic, wry, edgy, you know, those kinds of things, whether it's The Man Who Came to Dinner, The Black Comedy, Where No Angels, Bad Santa, The Ref, all these kind of edgy Christmas movies, which I personally find to be refreshing after watching movies I love, like Miracle on 34th Street or Remember. Makes a nice, nice palate cleanser. Yeah, it's a palate cleanser. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and you mentioned one there. There, there are several that were in there that kind of took me by surprise. In some of them shouldn't have, but you mentioned the man who came to dinner, which I know generally by reputation, I have never seen it. I'm embarrassed to say that, although the one I'm really embarrassed to say I haven't seen, it's on my list of shame that I need to get around to watching for several reasons, is The Apartment. I mean, Best Picture, Oscar, Billy Wilder. I can't say I have a good excuse for not ever having seen it, but I haven't seen it. And so I didn't realize that that would be considered a Christmas movie. But there are some others in there that I just wasn't familiar with at all. Remember the Night is probably the first one. And incidentally, the book goes chronologically in terms of the films. So it starts with the early ones. Remember the Night being among the earliest in there and then works its way forward from there. Well, it's pretty late coming to Remember the Night. Two friends of mine that worked at the Library of Congress, that was like their favorite movie. And whenever we talked to Christmas movies, that you got to see this, you got to see this. So I only saw it like maybe three or four years ago. Yeah, I'm going to see if I can hunt that one down this season, I think. Uh, there's a couple others there that I really, well, several others. I mean, all of these, because of your write-ups on them, make me interested in seeing them. I'll Be Seeing You is another one. And then The Cheaters, which I can't call everything to mind on that from uh, having you know gone through your book in a fairly short time period. But I remember that one sounding particularly intriguing. Do you want to talk about that one a little bit? Sure. The Cheaters is one of the new additions, one of the new additions to this edition of the book. And it's a pretty unusual film. It's not very well known. Essentially a B movie, although it was made by Republic Studios, which was sort of at the top tier of Poverty Row. It was made by them to celebrate the studio's 10th anniversary. And so they pumped a lot more money into it than usual. I think it was made on a budget of five or six times their usual. It was longer than usual, about an hour and a half. But it's populated entirely by character actors. There are no major stars. It owes a lot to A Christmas Carol. It's basically about a rich New York family who take in a charity case, a la My Man Godfrey, to which this film bears some strong similarity. We learn that they're about to run out of money. They're about to go bankrupt. 
And then they get word that a relative has died and he's left his incredible fortune, not to them, but to an actress he saw 20 years earlier playing a role in a play somewhere in Colorado. <laughs> so it has a very screwball setup. The family locates this actress in New York and they plan to shield her from being found by the investigators who are trying to carry out the provisions of the will. So they take her in as well without telling her what they're doing. So basically the whole family is a family of Scrooges. They're all, they're the cheaters. As the story goes on, both the charity case they've taken in, who's a sort of a homeless former Broadway star, and the actress that they've taken in, who also is struggling, they end up teaching this family the error of their ways. And the, the film becomes about them softening and transforming and, you know, maybe deciding not to carry out their plan. It's set during the Christmas season. And this idea of the season transforming someone in what I call a Scrooge-like transformation, it really becomes the central focus of the film. And near the end, the washed-up Broadway actor they've taken in, he ends up, he doesn't recite a Christmas carol verbatim, but he tells the family the story, Christmas Carol. And it's a quite, quite a long monologue. And the effect that this has on the family is almost like the effect would be if they were actually watching a production of A Christmas Carol or reading the actual story. It has that same effect. Shall we go for a walk? Yes, let's. Bully idea. Go for a walk. All of you. I will stay here. And while you're gone, I will keep on talking. I will speak of Molly's ghost. And the words will be held here within these walls for others who may come, refuse to listen like you and go on. I will ask again what Scrooge asked of Molly. Why are you fettered? And Molly will answer. I wear the chain I forged in life. So it's a really interesting sort of variation on Christmas Carol and its themes. Yeah. And there was another one later on that you indicated was kind of a variant of the Christmas Carol storyline theme, and that is Cash on Demand. Yes, that is a oh, such a good film. It's a 1961 British film from the Hammer Studio, which of course is best known for lurid horror movies, Dracula, you know, all those lots of Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee films, which are great. Right. But this is totally different. This is a small, suspenseful, tight drama, a heist movie, and it's told in real time. It's set in a little town in England on Christmas Eve, snowing outside. Essentially, a man comes into the bank and ends up forcing the bank manager played by Peter Cushing to help rob his own bank for this guy who then drives off and he has this whole elaborate plan. This man has also taken the bank manager's wife and child hostage, he says, and there's a phone call that sort of backs this up where we can hear them. So a very suspenseful heist ensues. And what makes this a Christmas movie is that the script was written very consciously as a variation on A Christmas Carol. The bank manager is Scrooge. He's very dictatorial with his employees. He treats them badly. He's, he has no compassion, no love. He doesn't allow them to display Christmas cards on their desks. He says he's not going to go to their Christmas party because he doesn't spend time with his subordinates. Miss Pringle, do you feel it really necessary to make such a display of your popularity? I thought they'd liven the desk up a little. Banking is one of the few dignified businesses left in the world, Miss Pringle. Do you mind terribly if we keep it that way? I'm sorry, sir. 
So he's basically a real jerk. And the thief basically represents all the Christmas spirits rolled into one. Because as the thief prods pushing to rob the bank, he sort of prods him about his home life, his past, his childhood, if he's a good husband, a good father. And he really gets under the skin of Peter Cushing. So that is very similar to what happens in A Christmas Carol. You're very fortunate in your staff for that. That is not my opinion. Oh, really? Have you ever contributed to their Christmas funds? I am not in the habit of ingratiating myself with my subordinates. I have news for you, Fordyce. You have just done that. I have done what? Ingratiated yourself. Give me five pounds. Five pounds? What for? Your contribution to the fund. And a slight token of regret for the ungenerous thoughts you've just expressed. Oh, and there, there's also a Bob Cratchit character. The sort of number two at the bank. The lieutenant. Very similar relationship. And at the end of the film, when when the Scrooge-like Peter Cushing has transformed, there's a very understated sequence between these two men, which is basically the equivalent of Scrooge and Cratchit making amends. So it's a really unusual film, highly worth seeking out. Yeah, that's another one that I intend to see if I can find real soon. And we've been talking all around A Christmas Carol. Of course, that is included as one of the, the 35 in there, specifically the 1951 version starring Alistair Sim, which originally titled Scrooge in the UK and A Christmas Carol over here. And I don't think anyone could really argue with selecting that one as the one to profile representative of the adaptations. But then you have a chapter where you do discuss a lot of the adaptations. A personal favorite of mine is the 1970 musical Albert Finney, Scrooge. I had the uh, pleasure of coming out of acting retirement, I guess it'd be six years ago now, and doing a uh, local production of that. I played Fezziwig. <laughs> Great. But that that's a favorite of mine. When I did the first edition of the book, I knew I was leaving out a lot of versions of A Christmas Carol. I just didn't have room to incorporate them. And I, That could be a book in and of itself. Oh, there are books about this <laughs> devoted exclusively to A Christmas Carol. Well, there you go. It's probably the most filmed novel or story of all time. I mean, the first version I know of was made in 1901, and it runs about three or four minutes long. It has been preserved, by the way, and it's findable on YouTube. It's quite interesting to to look at. Yeah, so I I knew with this edition, this was one of the things I wanted to do. I wanted to expand on the 1951 Christmas Carol and at least acknowledge some of the other really good versions. It's not an encyclopedia. I don't mention everything, but I cover most of the theatrical releases. Yes, I should add this book is... I, I say very clearly it's devoted to theatrical Christmas movies and cartoons, by the way. So there's no Charlie Brown Christmas. There's no Grinch, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, Rankin Bass. I do mention them, but they're not movies. They're television specials and they're their own thing. As for A Christmas Carol, I watched every version that I could, which might sound like torture because it's the same <laughs> story. But I mean, I didn't watch them all in a row in one day. I did spread it out a bit. But I was really surprised at how well all of them hold up, you know, at least fairly well, because it just speaks to how the structure of the Dickens story is so solid. It's just a yeah, really- it's just such a great story. Yeah, it really lends itself to the movies, I think. It's so visual. The original edition had these beautiful illustrations by John Leach, which went a long way toward creating the effect of this period London, especially the darkness of the story, of the spirit of Christmas yet to come, it often turns into almost a horror sequence, uh, especially in the 1951 version. 
Mr. Scrooge, sir. Who are you? Samuel Wilkins, sir. Oh, yes. You owe me a little matter of 20-odd pounds, I believe. Well, if you want to pay it, come to my place of business. I don't conduct my affairs in the teeth of inclement weather. I, I can't pay you, sir. I'm not surprised. Not unless you give me more time. Did I ask you for more time to lend you the money? Oh, no, sir. Then why should you ask me for more time to pay it back? I can't take my wife to a debtor's prison. Then leave her behind. So a lot of them are good. I think the 1951 is definitive. For some people, it's Albert Finney. For some people, it's 1938. Yeah, I was going to ask about the, the 38, the original one. What's your opinion on that one? I think it's a very good film. It's a little glamorized because it was made by MGM in 1988 right. as a major A-level production. And that's the way they did their movies back then, which isn't to say it's bad. It's just it's different. It, mm. it, it's not one to go to for period London grit. I'm bothered by his makeup. I never cared for his makeup. By the way, you know, the kid who played Tiny Tim in that version, Terry Kilburn, I think is the definitive Tiny Tim. I think he's the, the best of the bunch. And as of our recording, he is still with us. Hmm. He's, he's still alive. I think he lives in, in Michigan somewhere. So hmm. imagine that. Yeah, there's a couple of versions of that I still need to track down and watch. One of which, and again, it just I, I think your book probably motivated me to do so more than others. I've heard other people say they liked it, but the way you described it in your book made me really want to seek it out now, and that's The Muppet Christmas Carol. Let us deal with the eviction notices for tomorrow, Mr. Cratchit. Uh, tomorrow's Christmas, sir. Very well. You may gift wrap them. I love The Muppet Christmas Carol. Mm -hmm. I mean, I really toyed with making that its own chapter as well, but I just, I have the 51, I have this uh, chapter on all of them, I have Cash on Demand, which is a version of it, The Cheaters, which is slightly related to it. And I, I certainly mention the Dickens story a lot through the book because the Dickens story is responsible more than anything for the tropes of the season, for, for the way that we think of Christmas today. The idea of someone transforming from bad to good, transforming to the good that they always had in them, you know, I think is more accurate. That was concocted entirely by Dickens. It has nothing to do with Christmas before that. But it's such a big part of how we, we think of the season, compassion, transformation, things like that. The Muppet Christmas Carol is just brilliant because it gives us the Muppets and their irreverence and comedy and zaniness. But it also is an incredibly faithful adaptation of the Dickens story. And Michael Caine, as Ebenezer Scrooge, he plays it totally straight. He said in an interview, I'm going to play it as if I was playing it for the Royal Shakespeare Company. And I'm just going to ignore the fact that there are puppets all around me. Spirit, I fear you more than any specter I have yet met. Oh, this is too scary. I don't think I want to see any more. Oh, when you're right, you're right. You're on your own, folks. We'll meet you at the finale. Yeah. And that creates a really delicious, entertaining contrast in and of itself. And uh, I think the film works beautifully. Yeah, I need to see that. I also want to see the one with Patrick Stewart, in part because I had the pleasure a number of years ago when I was living in the Los Angeles area of seeing him do his live reading of the story and really enjoyed that. So seeing him play the role of Scrooge is something that I really need to do to complete that. The uh, George C. Scott one is very good, too. Yes. Uh, yes. And that, that one was released theatrically in the UK, but on television in the United States. 
Well, and another one that you meant, well, I mean, this is really tying in more to what you were talking about in terms of the story and the crafting of it and everything, but there's one, and I, I thought this was an original on Netflix. It's been released on DVD, but I don't know that it's had theatrical and that's the man who invented Christmas. Oh yes. No, that, that had a theatrical release. It did. Yes, it did. I, I, I wasn't aware it. of that. But, you know, the fact that you weren't aware or remembered that it was theatrical release kind of illustrates my contention that it's a very underrated, underknown film. I don't think it did that badly commercially either. So I can't remember how long it was in release, but definitely played in theaters and it just never gets shown anywhere anymore. And it's only five or six years old, but I, I don't often see it pop up on television or in revival houses or anything like that. So I think that one is ripe for rediscovery someday well it's well worth seeing it's very good and for anyone who's not familiar with it it's a fantasized version of the crafting of the story and publication of it by dickens and he draws upon his personal history and just people that he encounters on the streets of london different personalities and characters and then they they essentially come to life in his imagination and present themselves very much as the ghosts in the story do to scrooge to help him write this story and get it published get the name right and the character will appear scratch scrounger come on scrooge shut the window you think i'm made of money Mr. Scrooge, how delightful to meet you, sir. Yeah, it basically applies the story of A Christmas Carol to a story of the writing of A Christmas Carol. <laughs> you know, it, it, this film sort of is a version of A Christmas Carol in its own very meta way. It was released by Disney, I believe, so there's not a lot of grit or great seriousness. It's more of a family film, but I think it works on its own terms really well. And Christopher Plummer... Last seen in this conversation as the Santa suit wearing bank thief and the silent partner here plays a conjuring of Scrooge in Dickens' mind. And he's so good in the role that it really makes you wish he had just done a straight version of A Christmas Carol sometime. He's just wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Now, another one that didn't make the cut in there, and this is one that Jim is going to tie into here then. And that's the Lemon Drop Kid with Bob Hope. And so I, I'm curious as to how that one didn't make the cut. It's it's set during Christmas and Bob Hope is, well, it's Damon Runyon. So he's a Damon Runyon character, a con man. And one of his cons is setting up his fellow hoods, I guess you would say, as Salvation Army style Santas to collect money so he can pay off a debt to a gangster and in the middle of the film is the song this is where the song silver bells debuted so i mean for me that's plenty of reason to consider it a christmas movie and in fact uh that's going to be the main feature in jim's next screening yeah well as i said at the outset everyone defines christmas movie differently so you are absolutely correct it is a christmas movie for you and for many other people for me, it was more marginal. I I like the movie. I think it's a very enjoyable. It's a very enjoyable comedy that incorporates a lot of cartoonish comedy. I think, but in a way which is very apropos for Bob Hope and quite entertaining. Well, if it isn't the Lemon Drop Kid back from Florida, 
Merry Christmas. Save a life. Whose life? Mine. Come on, kid. Oh, now, wait a minute. I haven't done anything. I'm innocent. I'm just a small businessman. I'm in the Santa Claus business. Come along, Santa. I'll phone for the reindeer. Yeah, well, Tor Johnson in a Santa suit is immediately good for laughs. <laughs> That's true, too. <laughs> but as funny as it is, I just don't think for me that Christmas is particularly meaningful to what the film is really about. It gets close, but it doesn't get there all the way for me. And as for the song Silver Bells, I love the song. And I actually write about it in the book as a counterexample to Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, which is in Meet Me in St. Louis, which is a movie that only has a Christmas sequence for the last 25 minutes or so of the story. The rest of the film is set at other times of the year. But even if Christmas wasn't meaningful in other ways to meet me in St. Louis, which it is, the presence of that song in itself would be enough to make it a Christmas movie because it is so indelible. It is so famous. It is so linked to the season. It's so widely known even today. And we still hear it all, all the time, every holiday season. Silver Bells is up there. We hear it a lot every holiday season as well. And I love the song. But it doesn't really carry true meaning to the story of the movie in which it's placed. Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas does. It speaks to the loneliness and the idea of isolation that this little girl is going to feel because the family's moving from St. Louis to New York and turn of the century America. And like that's the major plot concern. And Judy Garland is singing this to little Margaret O'Brien, <laughs> I guess, to try and cheer her up, which is ironic because it's a very melancholy song. Well, but far less so than it was originally written, apparently, because that's something else that you included in your write-up of it is just how dour the original lyrics were. That's true. It was, they were very dark. The, the original lyrics began, have yourself a merry little Christmas. It may be your last. <laughs> uh, Judy Garland, when she read this, she said to Ralph Martin and Hugh Blaine, the songwriter, she's like, I, I can't sing this. The audience will think I'm a monster. I can't sing this to Margaret O'Brien. So the songwriters were asked to soften the lyrics and they just refused until finally one of the other actors, Tom Drake, sat down with Hugh Martin and said, look, you just have to change this. Just get over yourself and do it. And so he did do it. And the irony is that even the version that is in the movie is still quite melancholy and, and sad, poignant. So it certainly was enough to do the trick. But, you know, Silver Bells, it's not really linked to a theme of the movie Lemon Drop Kid that really has something to do with Christmas. It's just a really good holiday song that appears in that film, hmm. in my opinion. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I mean, it's perfectly reasonable. Now, there was another film that I had not seen prior to your book. It's one I was aware of. And... I just took that as, as my cue to watch it. And that is, it's one of the later ones. I think maybe about the next to last one in the book. And that's foreign film called Joyeux Noel. I love Joyeux Noel. Uh, this was a discovery for me in writing this new edition of the book. I wondered about throwing it in because it's mostly a foreign language film and all the other films are either American or British. And I thought, well, if I, if I have one foreign film, then what's my excuse for not including Fanny and Alexander and all sorts of other international Christmas movie productions? But I decided to just find a way to include it because it so perfectly sums up some of the central ideas of the book, the central ideas of Christmas movies. 
instead of having one character transform, you have thousands, you have entire battalions of troops transforming. This is a story set during World War One in the trenches. And there are there are Scottish troops, there are French troops, and there are German troops. And there's no man's land in between. And, and it's based on a true story. And it's based on a true story. It's based on the story of the Christmas truce of 1917, where on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, ceasefires broke out all along the Western Front. And soldiers put down their arms, went out into no man's land, and fraternized with the enemy and showed them pictures of their wives back home, shared chocolate and whiskey and food, and basically became human to each other. Good evening. Do you speak English? Yes, a little. Uh, we were talking about a ceasefire for Christmas Eve. The outcome of this war won't be decided tonight. I don't think anyone would criticize us for laying down our rifles on Christmas Eve. In some cases, they even played soccer games with each other. They also allowed the other side to remove their dead from the battlefield. When Christmas was over, the fighting resumed. And in some cases, at first, the soldiers fired over the heads of the enemy because they just couldn't kill them now. And when the armies back home in these countries found out what had happened, they were apoplectic. They immediately rotated soldiers out of those arenas into other parts of the war and replaced them with fresh soldiers who did not see the enemy as humanized and could go about killing them again. And a lot of the mail that was sent home by these soldiers was uh, suppressed or censored, especially in France. The story did come out, though, because the Scottish soldiers, their mail was was not censored. And the newspapers in, in England and the United States quickly found out about this and published stories about it. But in France, for decades, it was attempted to be suppressed as much as possible, even to the point that when the filmmaker who made Joy Noel, Christian Carrion, he wanted to shoot a good part of it in France. And it would have been on a piece of land that was controlled by the French military. And the military refused permission because even, what, 90, like 80 or 90 years later, when this film was being made, they didn't want to in any way give any glorification to what had happened during the war. They thought it was abominable even then. So he shot it in Romania with an international cast. It's in German and French and English. And it's about the truce. And it uh, takes a, a real-life incident of an opera singer who was in the trenches, I think, on the German side and sang for assembled opposing troops. And it turns this into a more melodramatic, <laughs> romantic story. But it works really well as a way of showing how Christmas can act as a force in a movie, as an active force that is nudging people toward each other, that is transforming them from evil Scrooge to nice Scrooge. In this case, transforming war into peace and letting all these people see each other as human. It really gives a strong sense of Christmas and Christmas time making this happen. This is, I think, a really important part of Christmas movies in general, this idea that Christmas is a force that works on the characters on the screen. So, yes, I would urge people to seek out Joy and Noel. It's a really beautiful film. Okay, now getting back to the more familiar, and as I said, there are plenty of familiar titles in the book. Of those, when you were doing whatever quantity of research was needed to write them up well, 
What did you discover, or I should say, were there any surprises in researching these really familiar films? You know, the the White Christmases, the Miracle on 34th Street, It's a Wonderful Life, that sort of thing. Maybe something that wasn't generally known that you ran across. Yes, there were quite a few. Some of them are very specific. For example, The Man Who Came to Dinner, which is, a you know, as we said earlier, a cynical, wry, very funny, satirical comedy made in 1942. This was almost Orson Welles' second film after Citizen Kane. He knew that Warner Brothers was making The Man Who Came to Dinner, which was based on a huge Broadway success. And he wanted to direct it and play the lead. And RKO wouldn't loan him out to Warner Brothers. They had just made Citizen Kane. I think it hadn't yet been released. And they thought they were sitting on a real gold mine with Orson Welles and didn't want to lend him out anywhere. So it's just sort of astonishing to think that Orson Welles might have directed this after Citizen Kane. And I, I could see him playing the role. This was a discovery made by Leonard Malton a few years ago. I can't remember how he came across this factoid, but he does get the credit for it. So that's interesting. Another specific surprise was in It's a Wonderful Life, the snow, the snow effect in that film was so innovative that it won an Oscar. I think two years later, it won a Scientific and Technical Academy Award for new methods of simulating falling snow on motion picture sets. I think that's the way it was worded. And what happened was up until 1945, 1946, snow was created for movies in many different ways, but most commonly by bleached cornflakes. These could look okay falling, but you couldn't really aim them. You couldn't get a wind-driven effect. And worst of all, they were loud and crunchy if you walked on them or had cars driving over the snow. So it was hard to shoot dialogue scenes in this cornflake snow. Filmmakers had used other methods too, like cotton, asbestos, before anyone knew how dangerous that was. So Capra knew that for this film, he would have lots of really important scenes set in the snow, characters talking as it's snowing all around them and walking around and driving. And cornflakes wouldn't do. They would be way too loud. They'd have to dub all the dialogue again on a soundstage, which was the norm in this type of scenario. So he instructed his special effects department to come up with something new. And they experimented. And through trial and error, they came up with a mixture of fomite, which is the ingredient in fire extinguishers, and soap and water and sugar. And they mixed all this up into these big vats. And they fired it out through high pressure hoses, like fire hoses. And above these hoses, they had these giant fans that were designed to operate silently. And they could be tilted and rotated in any direction to aim this snow, which was being shot up vertically, to aim it towards the set and have it fall in a gentle way in a hard driving way, whatever effect might be desired. It looked realistic. It didn't create any crunching sounds when you walked on it because it was basically liquid. And it looked very realistic. And the snow in its wonderful life is just beautiful. And it's also very meaningful to the story. After all, it is the sight of falling snow that tells us that George Bailey is back in the real world. George, you all right? Hey, what's the matter? Now get out of here, Bert, or I'll hit you again. Get out of here. What the Sam Hill are you yelling for, George? You... George? Bert, do you know me? Know you? <laughs> you kidding? I've been looking all over town trying to find you. I saw your car piled into that tree down there, and I thought maybe you... 
Hey, your mouth's bleeding. Are you sure you're all right? What you? <laughs> My mouth's bleeding, Bert. My mouth's bleeding. Zuzu pedals. Zuzu. There they are. Bert, what do you know about that? Merry Christmas. It also is key to the scene where he's running through Bedford Falls yelling Merry Christmas to everyone. It gives the feeling of Christmas in a way that the film wouldn't have if there weren't snow in that sequence. So that was quite interesting. And I'm <laughs> the photo I am most proud of finding for this book is a photo of this snowmaking equipment on the set of It's Wonderful Life. It was really hard to find, and it was rather expensive to acquire. And I had to really insist to the publisher that they shell out for it. And I'm really glad they did. And I made sure it was printed quite big partly to justify the expense, but also sure. just because it's it's so interesting. Yeah. So so that was something new. Something else was that there were three films that, as originally written, were much harder-edged and much more horrific and nastier and darker than the final versions. And those are Gremlins, Die Hard, and Elf. All of them were softened considerably by their filmmakers before shooting. You know, and this speaks to what I was saying earlier about Die Hard being so cheerful and joyful. The original script was not like that. It was a very dark police drama, basically. The casting of Bruce Willis had a lot to do with softening it up and adding humor. And in fact, he was very controversial when he was announced for that. I remember very clearly how everyone was laughing at the idea that Bruce Willis could be an action star because the only thing people knew him from was Moonlighting, which is a very different kind of show, you know, sort of a sex comedy, romantic comedy show that was very popular on television. But he brought that tone to the film. Gremlins was a really nasty horror script before Joe Dante softened it up and made it much more family friendly. I mean, it still has some nastiness in it, but not, not, it's not so bad. It's not so bad as people sometimes fear it is. And Elf was also much grittier and had been floating around Hollywood for a decade before John Favreau got a hold of it and decided that he wanted he wanted to make it not as a PG-13 or R rated movie which is what it would have been but PG because he wanted to make a Christmas movie that would appeal to all ages and would sort of become annual viewing which it did very hard to do but it worked in his case and he also wanted to reclaim New York after the 9-11 attacks and sort of give New York back to the New Yorkers in the way that they think of the city. So that worked really well, too. One other thing that really struck me in my research was how in the 1940s and 50s in particular, movies that we now call Christmas movies were released all throughout the year, all throughout the, the calendar, and not just in November or December which is usually the case today with Christmas movies. Christmas in Connecticut came out in the summer. Holiday Inn came out in the summer. Remember the Night opened in January. Beyond Tomorrow opened in May. Miracle on 34th Street opened in June of 1947 without any hint of Christmas in its advertising or its trailer. I urge people to seek out the trailer online. It's incredible that you could concoct a trailer for Miracle on 34th Street without showing Santa Claus, without mentioning Christmas or anything like that. That is the greatest picture I have ever made. And I've got the angle on the trailer. The studio didn't know what to do with that film. So they released it in the summer because that was the most lucrative movie going time of the year. But what all this really 
said to me, it just underscored the idea that Christmas was being used by filmmakers, writers and directors as a way to tell story and not just as an excuse to release a movie at Christmas time. The fact that Christmas could just pop up so often throughout the year proves that it was being used in a very conscious, specific, meaningful way, I would say. Well, as usual, an hour, give or take, is hardly enough time to to get into a lot of depth on these things. But now we come to the question I always ask my guests here to wrap things up, and that is, what is your most memorable movie-going experience? Well, can I give you two? That seems to be a pattern. Sure, go ahead. <laughs> I've seen a lot of movies. It's really, really hard to own it down. Number one for me would be Star Wars on opening weekend, 1977, at the Uptown Theater in Washington, D.C., on Connecticut Avenue. I had to talk my dad into taking me. He didn't want to see it. He didn't really know anything about it. I, of course, was I was seven years old. I was dying to see it. And so he agreed. We went to an afternoon showing, probably on Saturday of that weekend. And there was a line around the block. This is a huge theater in D.C., by the way. I mean, it had close to a thousand seats. Huge line. We finally, finally, finally get to the box office window. And there's one ticket left. Oh. And <laughs> I remember my, my dad saying, well, can't he just sit on my lap? And somehow he talked the ticket person into letting us both in. And miraculously, we found two seats together. I couldn't believe it. Probably about three or four rows from the front. I even remember that on the other side of me, there was a man wearing a turban. It was just something I noticed at the age of seven. So that's how much this day and experience has stayed with me, that I remember every single detail. And of course, the movie itself, you know, blew me away. My dad thanked me profusely for <laughs> forcing him to bring me to it. <laughs> so that was really special. The other memorable experience was in 2011 or 2012, I was hired by Sony Home Entertainment to do a coffee table book about the making of Lawrence of Arabia, which they were going to release as a supplement to the Blu-ray release of the movie, which had never been on Blu-ray before. And I was really good friends with a woman named Ann Coates, who was the editor of Lawrence of Arabia and happened to be my neighbor at the time, strangely enough. And she was, oh, she was in her 70s, I guess, at the time. And the movie itself was being restored, I think, like an 8K scan. I mean, it was getting a really state-of-the-art restoration. And when they had sort of an answer version done, they had Anne come to the Sony lot to look at the film and basically give them any notes on, on the color or anything like that. And she brought me along. We sat in a rather small screening room, ironically, <laughs> watching Lawrence of Arabia, and the lights were only half down. And she said at the beginning, Jeremy, I've seen this, you know, 500 times. Feel free to talk all through the movie. Ask me anything you want as we're watching. And so I spent four hours in there watching Lawrence with Ann Coates and having a great conversation about it. I could kill myself now for not having a tape recording of that conversation, but it was still quite quite memorable. And she she was a good friend and a really talented editor who, oh, she did all sorts of other great movies like Unfaithful and Out of Sight and The Elephant Man, to name just a few. Her last movie was Fifty Shades of Grey. So the editor of Lawrence of Arabia went out on that. <laughs> mm, okay. <laughs> yeah, bit of a contrast. <laughs> Very much. All right. 
Well, Jeremy, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. And once again, his book, Christmas in the Movies, new expanded edition. If you don't already have it, heck, if you already have it, get the new one and appreciate the improved photo quality that he talked about, the additional titles that are in there. There's time to order it and get it for Christmas, for yourself, for friends, relatives, put under the tree. And there will be a link for doing that on the bookshelf page of the Movie Nights and Matinee's website. So swing by and treat yourself. So Jeremy, once again, thank you for joining us on Movie Nights and Matinee's. Thank you, Bill and Jim, for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Jeremy. In addition to finding Jeremy's book on the bookshelf page of the Movie Nights and Matinee's website, you can find Amazon links for films in his book, as well as some Christmas movies that aren't, on the screening room page. Don't forget to visit the Facebook page where you can weigh in on the diehard question, proclaim your favorite adaptation of A Christmas Carol, or just share your thoughts. Once again, my profound thanks to those of you who have been listening, not just to this episode, but to the podcast in general over this past year. This will be the final episode of 2023. I'm going to take some time off to enjoy the holidays, rest up, and catch up on some reading and movie watching. When Jim and I return in January, it will be for the first anniversary episode, and trust me, you will not want to miss it. I'm very excited about having as our guest a gentleman I've long admired for his contributions to the entertainment industry, and whose name will almost certainly be very familiar to you. His episode will be just the first in a lineup of episodes that looks to be every bit as diverse and fascinating as those to date. So to make sure you don't miss out when episode 24 drops, be sure to hit the follow or subscribe button wherever you listen, if you haven't already done so. And if you have, I heard something recently about Apple changing their algorithms or some such thing. So if you listen on Apple Podcasts, you may need to resubscribe or refollow to make sure you continue to get the episodes automatically. Also, please be sure to share the podcast with fellow movie lovers. Although there won't be another episode as such until January, there just might be a little something of interest popping up on the Facebook page before then, so be sure to give that a like. In the meantime, I want to wish you all a safe and happy holiday season. And, more specifically... Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, pal. Hey! Merry Christmas! Merry Christmas! Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas! Merry Christmas.